Hi, this is Ben Lowell. Merry Christmas and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin Dr. John's new Christmas series called Christmas in the First Testament. So turn to your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've been thinking and wondering again at this time of the year, you know, why it is that Christmas is so much more popular than Easter. Or to put it another way, why is it that in the post-Christian world in which we live, that has abandoned almost every vestige of its Christian past, I mean, why is it that Christmas, of all things, has survived? I mean, Christmas is more popular, not just than Easter, but more popular than Remembrance Day, Halloween, Thanksgiving, uh, even some would argue more popular than summer vacation times, Christmas. I mean, in the darkest time of the year, that is, in the middle of winter, when you might expect, you know, there's gloom and depression. I mean, everyone strings up lights around their houses, and suddenly the dark world is awash in many colored lights. What makes Christmas so difficult this year is that, of course, the year that I record this is the year that we are celebrating Christmas during a raging pandemic. And many are struggling that one thing that they have looked forward to more than any other time is get-togethers. You know, whether it's family gatherings or even extended family gatherings, as family members who live far away promising, you know, I'll be home for Christmas. And then, of course, there are the office parties, many other parties. Gifts are handed out, greetings are exchanged, movies are endlessly played on television sets throughout the country. Movies, of course, that are kind of sappy, but we love them anyway. You know, people get time off from work. Colleges and universities are shut down for Christmas. And then, of course, and there's the music, ha, the music, old stuff, new stuff. And then even on secular radio stations, the occasional Christmas hymn or Christmas carol thrown in for good measure. Christmas is not the celebration of an event. It's a month-long celebration of an event. And many encounter it with great deal of joy. You know, I've noticed that it doesn't matter if you're religious or not, or even if you're a Christian or not. People celebrate Christmas in this culture with great gusto. And again, I'm left musing as to why that's so. And of course, it's not just popular in the West. I mean, Christmas is popular, as I understand it, even in Japan, which has very, very few Christians. In many countries, as you know, Christmas giving is, is so large that it, that it drives the economy. Merchants would blanch at the idea that Christmas would go away. And again, why is that so? Now, I don't want to get into the, you know, the common arguments that seem to go on this time of the year, that, that Christmas really is a pagan celebration with its roots in paganism, and that somehow the Christian church just hitched onto a pagan celebration. I've read all that stuff, and, and maybe you have as well. But as best as I understand it, all that stuff's simply not true. Early Christian writers who began to interest themselves in the exact date of Christ's birth never even hinted at the idea that they would choose December 25th as a way of taking over a pagan festival. I mean, that idea was not hinted at until the 12th century. So, nice try, not true. It seems to me that the celebration of Christmas first began somewhere in the 4th century for a whole host of complex reasons. But nonetheless, it began as a Christian celebration celebrating the birth of our Lord. So, so enough with the origins of the celebration of Christmas on the 25th of December. See, one thing is sure. It began as a Christian celebration, and now, over the years, it's become wildly popular beyond all boundaries. 
No ancient Christian leader ever imagined that it would be more popular than, you know, Epiphany or Easter or Pentecost. But it has. You know, Epiphany and Pentecost have died in the North American church, and Easter is often an event now that pales in celebration next to Christmas. So why is that? So here's my conclusion. You know, we've made so much of Christmas because we have failed to understand it within its intended context. You see, for many, Christmas is about innocence and tenderness. It's about love. It's about hope. It's about light shining in the darkest places, places that desperately need light. It's about God's love for the world, and therefore, the wider culture has grasped the context. If Christmas is about love and God giving his son, why don't we make it about love too and giving gifts to one another? Why not make it a time when we set aside some of the animosity that has developed over the year and return to a time of innocence and affection for each other? And since Christmas is about the birth of the Christ child, why not make the emphasis of Christmas all about children as well? Ah, that expectant look in those innocent faces on Christmas morning, the sheer joy of it all, and our joy too as we watch those beautiful children. And that's why Christmas is so attractive. And Easter, on the other hand, well, it's bare and it's raw. It's filled with violence and hatred and blood. It's about intense suffering and a conversation about what our sins actually deserve. It's about alienation from God. It's about the substitutionary atonement of the Lamb of God. See, it's, it's harder for a secular world to get something out of that. Even though the secular world has tried, I mean, by, you know, kind of making it about bunnies and hunting for chocolate, it doesn't work very well. Where's the connection? I mean, really? And that gets me back to my earlier question. And here now, I wish to expand on it. Why has even the Christian churches of North America, why has Christmas eclipsed everything else in our life? I mean, given the death and resurrection of our Lord as the centerpiece of our faith, And given that Christmas came along some 300 years later, long after this celebration of Easter had begun, how did it happen that it became such a big thing for us? See, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't celebrate Christmas. We're free to celebrate it, or I guess to not. But I'm thinking about the words of the Apostle Paul, recorded in Galatians 6.14. See, there he writes, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let me see if I can put that in my own words. I I would not boast in anything, save in this one thing. I boast in the efficacy or in the unsurpassed value of the cross. You know, once I've understood the cross fully, not only do I see Christ crucified for me, but I also see the world is now crucified to me. Nothing but nothing has any glory left compared to that one thing. Did you notice what Paul didn't say? I mean, he didn't say, but far be it from me to boast in anything except the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or far be it from me to boast in anything except the incarnation of our Lord, in the wonder of God being found clothed in human flesh. Now, to be sure, that surely is a great wonder. But in the New Testament, the cause for celebration, the explosion of praise to God, comes from the cross. Listen to that wonderful hymn that Paul mentions in Philippians 2 verse 8. He says of the life of Jesus, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Now, I hope you notice that Paul doesn't bypass Christmas, or to put it theologically, he doesn't bypass the incarnation. He who was always God from eternity past was found in human form. But no sooner has Paul mentioned that when he speaks of his divine humiliation that was seen in him becoming obedient to the point of his embracing of his death on the cross, that is in Paul's mind. You can't even begin to speak of Christ's birth without, in the very same breath, mentioning the purpose of his birth. He came to offer himself up unto death on the cross. This child was born into the world so that he might be our sin substitute. He is born to be one despised by men. Or listen to how John describes it in John 1, 9 to 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Yeah, despised and rejected. That's the Christmas story, says John. Indeed, even though it is true that the shepherds came to see the Christ child, I'm not convinced that they were chosen to come because shepherds are not well thought of. You see, I think they came because their presence symbolized what God had in mind. Here, lying in the manger, was one that is born to shepherd his people, but very soon now, his people would reject their shepherd. And in response, he would become the Passover lamb whose blood would be splattered on the door frames of our hearts so that the angel of death might pass over us. Indeed, it's been argued that since these shepherds were near Jerusalem, the sheep they would have been raising would have been a part of the sacrificial ritual in the temple. Sheep raised for slaughter. And here, this one in the manger is another sheep raised for the slaughter. And so it was. You know, King Herod, upon learning that the Messiah had been born, flies into a rage and begins his own slaughtering. He would kill every boy if necessary. If only he could kill this one child. Yeah, John was right. He's the light that's coming into the world, but men prefer darkness rather than light, for we would not receive him. You see, I think we misrepresent Christmas a lot, making it a story of innocence and tenderness and love. Yeah, it's about those things, but in a very different context than the world believes and celebrates. The Advent season is a very special time of year, but it sometimes gets lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. While this month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as he walks us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with a very special video presentation entitled, An Advent Celebration. An Advent celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings good news and great joy. To know more or to make a gift to support the ministry this season, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You know, this Christmas season, I have decided to take us to the First Testament. And after all, traditionally, in order to get prepared for the true meaning of Christmas, the church has celebrated a four-week period called Advent. And Advent means arrival. 
It's supposed to remind us of how God prepared for the coming of the Son of God. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. That is to say, God sent his Son after a long period of preparation. And furthermore, that long period of preparation should help us understand who he is. And in truth, the Old Testament is a book of preparation. And if all we had been left with was the First Testament, it would have been an incomplete book. Let me suggest an illustration. Years ago, I picked up a book by a famous author not knowing that he hadn't finished it before he died. You know, the book had a lengthy introduction from the publisher, which explained all that. Well, I didn't read that part. I just jumped in, and as I was getting near the end, I was noticing that it seemed to me there weren't enough pages to resolve things. And then it ended, and then I went to the introduction, and I remember thinking, you know, if I had known that, I wouldn't have started reading in the first place. Well, that's how the First Testament feels. It's, It's unfinished. It's unresolved. It leaves us hanging. Any objective reading of the First Testament leaves us thinking that something but something should be added here. But now let's turn it the other way around. I don't think you can understand the birth of Jesus without the First Testament. See, without the First Testament, you might think the birth of Jesus is the kind of sentimental nonsense that gets talked about this time of the year. Now then, that's but an introduction to this year's Christmas series. I want to take some time to speak about Christmas from Genesis from Exodus, from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, from Ruth and 2 Samuel, the Psalms, the book of Isaiah, Daniel, and Zechariah. I know it's quite a list, but but we could make it even more than that. See, there's a movement of expectation that runs through the first 39 books of our Bible that once that's seen and understood, well, it leaves us breathless with expectation. Either this is God making a promise to the world or the First Testament isn't a divine book at all. And the birth of Jesus shows us that this is God making promises to the world. So where do we start? I think we need to start with the Genesis account of creation and the fall and the rising sense of expectation. You know, Genesis 1, as almost everyone knows, begins with the words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And our Bible begins by acknowledging that this book, that is the Bible, is the story about God. Before anything existed, there was that one solitary God who has eternally existed. And John tells us in John 3, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that has been made. All created things have their origin in God. And as such, God is not only the creator of creation, he's also the ruler of creation. And furthermore, everything in creation owes its existence to him. You know, for that reason, Psalm 148, 3 to 5 says, Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. You know, it's often been said that what the Bible says about the creator and his creation has no parallel in other ancient religious traditions. Pagans viewed, we might call their deities as sweating deities. The universe either came into being through sexual activity of the gods or through some other very difficult activity. But the God who actually is, that is, the God of the Bible, creates with ease. I mean, how difficult was it for God to create? Not difficult at all. He simply speaks and it comes to be. But this truth requires a response from us. Psalm 33, 8 and 9 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. That is, at any point in time, God can speak and whatever he says comes to be. Therefore, what has happened on this earth can never be relegated to chance or fluke or meaningless activity. God reigns over everything. And so the perfectly glorious and all-powerful and all-wise God spoke a universe into existence, every single part of it, meticulously designed as he does. And then on this planet, earth, this privileged planet, God spoke life into existence and not just life, For God had planned that all the life that should exist on this earth, he would make one species absolutely unique. Man as male and female would be made in the image of God. And in some ways, human beings are remarkably like God. And more so, we of all creatures have been given a capacity to know our creator and to commune with him. Indeed, we're told that in the evening, the man and the woman would hear the sound of their creator walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they would have fellowship with him. And then we learned something that troubles some sensitive minds. Indeed, we learned two things. The first is that God placed a tree in the center of the garden that he had made for the first human pair. Among all the trees, this one was different. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with the creation of that one tree comes the creator's first prohibition, He says, don't eat from that tree, for the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And that's it. God threatens. But of course, we already know how this is going to end. But here's an important issue. God already knows how this is going to end. So then why, why would God add a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? And the second perplexing question is that one day the woman is confronted by a serpent who comes to her making the most preposterous claims. He said that God has been lying to her about her possible death. God is not to be trusted, he says. He also says that if she eats of the tree, that she herself will become a goddess equal to the creator. And God's afraid of that outcome, he says. And so we're left with our second question. Why would the creator who controls all things allow the serpent access to the woman and to the man? And of course, we might also ask where the serpent came from, but I I leave that to another time. But clearly, God desires that the man and the woman be faced with a choice. They will not be automatons. They will be in his image. They will have to choose between good and evil. And good is to submit to the all-glorious, all-powerful, and all-wise, and perfectly benevolent creator. But evil consists in striking out on our own way. And as we know, our first parents struck out on their own and chose to be alienated from their creator. Has the creator lost control of his creation? Well, hardly. Indeed, he had foreseen this event long before the world was created. This event was a part of his eternal plan. We know that because 1 Peter 1 verse 20, speaking about the entrance of the Messiah into the world, that is the Christmas event, it says, He, the Messiah, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And so from the time before God had even uttered words that brought the universe into being, he had already ordained the kind of universe he would create. It would be a universe that required a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer, one who would rescue a ruined humanity from their rebellion against the Creator. And here's what I'm saying. The story of the Bible is the story of God and his saving purposes for a ruined and lost race. With this in mind, let's get back to Adam and Eve, that first human pair. 
You know, they've stood before the tree, taken its fruit, and they've eaten. And the fruit in their mouth is symbolic of the fruit of all human rebellion against God, the failure to acknowledge him as God, and the resolve to become gods in our own right without having to answer to him again. But again, God foreknew that event. It didn't surprise him. And so after the first rebellion was complete, God turns his attention to the serpent and he says, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And you might think that once the serpent had convinced the woman to rebel against God, as indeed the serpent had himself done, that from that moment on, the human race would be allied with the serpent against their creator. But such would not be the case. To his horror, the serpent realizes that the great creator, the one who spoke worlds into existence, had spoken again. I'll create hostility between you and the woman, and that hostility will be ongoing. It will be characterized by rank hatred between you. Yes, the serpent will create followers, but the offspring of the woman will continue to be in animosity to the serpent. But in the fullness of time, one of the woman's offspring would bruise the head of the serpent. Indeed, he would crush him. But you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. That is, you'll cause him to suffer. That's the storyline of the Bible. It's a story of expectation. How long will this destructive rebellion continue? How dark will the human race become? How cursed will we be? How overwhelmed will we be with death? How alienated from our Creator? Christmas is the beginning of the answer to those questions. And that answer will only be given when that very same Messiah is brought to the cross and dies for our sins. Have a Merry Christmas. Thanks so much, John. This is going to be a fantastic series. But let me ask you this. Do you think in some ways we've overdone Christmas to, to the point where we've forgotten what really happened or, or what's really important? You know, Ben, I think if I answer yes, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble from a lot of people. Um, you know, Christmas is a wonderful time of year. I'm not trying to take that away, not in the least. But I am trying to put it into its proper place. I would want us to again think, of how important is Easter. That's the central plank. It should be the biggest celebration we have. And also Pentecost. My goodness, this should be a grand celebration among us as well. We need to find a way of recapturing that and thereby putting Christmas in its rightful place. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Christmas series, Christmas in the First Testament, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As you know, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to sharing the good news every single day through our radio Bible teaching and a wide variety of audio and video resources. While buying time for radio teaching on stations from coast to coast is costly, it's a cost we believe is of high value. All of our ministries rely on the generosity of people like you. And this month stands out as critical as we look to close the calendar year end strong for the new year ahead. Our goal for December 31st is to raise $376,000 to support our ministry work. 
please consider investing in our efforts to help people of all ages and stages to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.